0: As you see seated, let's pray through those last two lines there. O great God of highest heaven, we address you as the one ruler of the universe, the one great God and King of all. We pray that you would glorify yourself through us, that you would bring yourself fame and renown, honor and majesty, Respect and love through us. Glorify yourself in the way that we listen to your word this morning. Glorify yourself in the way that your word is preached. Glorify yourself in your son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I love it when the babies say amen. Well, again, good morning. Welcome to ARC and this time together in God's Word. If you're visiting with us this morning, then you have landed right smack in the middle of a sermon series through our church's statement of faith. The most important thing you'll ever need to learn about a church when you're being introduced to it and getting to know it is what it believes. And most churches will sort of summarize what they believe in their statement of faith or in their what's sometimes called creed. The statement we use is called the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. It was written by Christians in England in 1689, uh, and it summarizes for us in 32 sections um, the sort of major points of Christian teaching from the Bible. And we have come to section 14, which is called Saving Faith. And that's what we're thinking about this morning, saving faith. Now, it's striking everywhere you go, You meet people who say they believe in God. It's a common statement, isn't it? I mean, in all kinds of cultures, people say, we believe in God. In all kinds of religions, people say, we we believe in God. Even people of no particular religious faith will often tell you that they believe in God. It's a common saying. And you even meet people whose lives really don't reflect any religious commitment, in fact, can look quite contrary to religious commitment, who say, I believe in God. Well, what do we need to make of such belief? How are we to understand it? How are we to evaluate it? I mean, when you read the gospel narratives, for example, when you see Jesus, for example, casting out demons out of people who've been demon-possessed, even those demons believe in God. So, what kind of faith, what kind of belief is saving faith, is saving belief? And you know what I mean when I say saving. Is this another word for rescuing? What kind of faith rescues us from the judgment of God that is coming upon the world? How how do we escape? And, And what belief lays out the path of escape from God's coming judgment? Can any kind of faith please God? Can faith in any God rescue us from judgment? What does it look like to believe in God in a saving way? And how do we know that we have such a faith? Those are the kinds of questions I want us to consider this morning as we come to this section of our statement of faith. You'll find the statement printed in your bulletins uh, on page 10. And this morning, uh, I want to sort of approach this a little bit differently. Normally, we would take a section of Scripture, just one passage, and I would preach through that passage kind of verse by verse, sentence by sentence. Well, we were talking Wednesday night as elders, and it dawned on us that almost every sermon we've done in this series, we've taught these truths from what's called the letters, from the epistles, right? Right? And we thought it'd be good to see the truths actually from the narrative portions of Scripture. The Bible is made up of different kinds of uh, literature. Some are personal letters that are written by one person to another church or another individual. Some are histories. Some are prophecy. We thought these truths run through the whole Bible Let's see them in a different kind of literature. Let's see them from a narrative portion of Scripture. So I apologize to all of you who uh, worked on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 all week in your quiet time. Uh, We're going to think about Genesis chapter 15. (laughs) Ephesians 2 is still true, and it's still good to share, but we're going to think about Abraham as the example of saving faith. What does saving faith look like? What's its nature? How do we know we have it? Well, we know we have saving faith if three things are true. And this is our outline for this morning. Number one, we know we have saving faith if we believe the gospel and grow in that belief. If we believe the gospel or God's word and we grow in that belief. We know we have saving faith. Number two... If we accept, love, trust, and obey God's Word, if we accept, trust, love, obey, delight in God's Word, the Bible, that's evidence of having saving faith. Number three, we know we have saving faith if we continue to believe the gospel and in Christ's through the ups and downs and the attacks of life, until we receive eternal life. Now those three sentences are summaries of the three paragraphs that are in our statement of faith. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take each paragraph, and I'll give you a summarizing sentence of each paragraph, and then we'll look back at the life of Abraham to see the illustration of that point. You guys with me? Okay, so let's start with number one. We know we have saving faith if we believe the Word of God and we grow in faith. That's the, that's the kind of gist, if you will, of that first paragraph on page 10. Let's read that together. The grace of faith by which the elect are enabled to believe the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit in their hearts. Normally it is brought into being through the preaching of the Word. By the word and its ministry, by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, by prayer and also by other means appointed by God, faith is increased and strengthened. So, once in a summary, saving faith comes from God through preaching and grows from there. Saving faith comes from God through preaching, and it grows from there. And the first person with whom we, we see this pattern in the Scripture is a man named Abram when we first meet him. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter uh, 15. <laughs> Genesis chapter 15. If you need a Bible, I'm, I'm sorry, if you need a Bible, raise your hands. There are a couple gentlemen who will come and bring your Bible. Uh, so if you need a Bible and want to follow, al- follow along with us in the Scripture, we'll bring you one. And if you don't have a Bible at home, uh, we invite you to take this one as a gift from us. We would love for you to have the Word of God in your home. Uh, And so please take this one as a gift from us. A couple more uh, down front here. As they're passing out those Bibles, let me tell you just a little bit about Abraham. We first meet him at the very end of Genesis chapter 11. He's with his father and his brothers and their families. And something interesting happens. God calls him to leave his father and his brothers and their families, to leave, his, to leave his country even, and to go to a land that God promised to give him, a land that he'd never been to before, a land that he had never seen. And it's striking. Abram, when we first meet him, is not a religious man. He's at least not the kind of religious man that he's going to be. He's from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. He's from a pagan land. among people who do not know God. And God comes to this man and speaks to this man and calls him to go to this land that he's going to show him. Now, not only does God call him to leave his family and his home and his ethnic group, to leave his entire country, but God makes promises to him in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And his promise is basically this, that he's going to send Abraham into that land, and in that land... He's going to make Abraham, this one man, into a great nation of people that nobody can count. That's his basic promise to Abraham. And it's that promise that's being renewed and given in Genesis chapter 15. So look with me in Genesis chapter 15. When you hear me say chapter number, I'm referring to the big number on the page. So Genesis chapter 15, and when you hear me say verse number, I'm referring to the small number, all right? Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6, is where we want to start in picking up Abraham's life. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household, meaning one of my servants, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now remember what we said. Saving faith comes from God through preaching, and it grows from there. Now here, notice in verse 1, that little phrase, The word of the Lord came to Abram. In other words, God spoke to him. Praise God. God exists, and he is not silent. He speaks. He speaks to his creation and he speaks and he speaks powerful words of promise and deliverance and guidance. He communicated with Abram here and he says, listen, let me tell you something. I'm going to bless you. Now, notice in verses two and three, Abraham has some questions, doesn't he? It's interesting that we often respond to God's word initially with questions and maybe even doubt or maybe even disbelief people have to hear the the promises of God normally several times before they begin to understand them and to get their hands on them and to and to really lay hold to them even abram the father of the faithful had some questions now we might understand this because abram received these promises when he was about 90 years old now he's about 99 and the promise was he's going to have children right So you got this 99-year-old man promised almost 10 years ago that God's going to give him children. It was a big enough promise 10 years ago. Now, 10 years later, he's like, yo, so you know what? I got this servant that's going to inherit all my stuff unless you give me children. And God says, no, no, no. Eleazar will not be your heir. Takes him outside, shows him the stars of the sky. I imagine that was a brilliantly clear night. And God says, your offspring... Will be more numerous than the stars if you could count them. That's a staggering promise, isn't it? And so God's word comes to Abram, and the key verse is verse 6. Look there with me. Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, despite his questions, Abram chose to accept and to trust what God had said. That's what it means to believe God. He accepted God's word as true and he trusted himself to that word. And not just in this situation, this believing of God, which is saving faith, it begins when we we receive God's promise, but it carries on through our lives. We continue to believe God. And notice here, that belief, was counted to Abram as righteousness. In other words, God didn't look to Abram and say, you've done all these wonderful things, and so therefore you're righteous. No, God says, you believe in me, and I declare you righteous. The fancy word for that is imputation. A righteousness was credited to Abraham because of his faith. Now remember I once one-sentence summary? Saving faith comes from God through preaching and grows from there. Well, we see this in Abraham's life most clearly, that that sort of statement, that summary statement, most clearly, if we keep our fingers in Genesis 15 and we turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Now, Abraham, being as important as he is, as as really the the first man of faith with whom God makes a covenant, he's referred to several times throughout the scripture. He becomes like this larger-than-life character in the history of Israel and in the history of the faithful. So we're not surprised that because the Bible is one book and later writers are often explaining previous things, that they refer to Abraham. And this verse, verse 6 in Genesis 15, is often quoted in the New Testament. I want us to see how Paul thinks of it here in Genesis 3, 1 and 9. Look with, or Galatians 3, 1 and 9, excuse me. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, that word publicly portrayed it it, it means placarded it's, it's like a billboard so paul is saying in the preaching of the gospel i raised a billboard for you on which you could see christ crucified right he was crucified for you for your sins and he says who's bewitched you let me ask you only this did you receive notice the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith are you so foolish Having begun, notice, by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This saving faith comes from the work of the holy spirit in our lives it's the spirit who raises us from the death of unbelief and gives us this life that is in christ and so he's calling the galatians foolish because they have began to walk with christ by faith but now some teachers have come in and taught them that they got to obey all these rules from the old testament and he's saying who's bewitched you who's put this spell on you who's tricked you So that now, having begun by faith, by the power of the Spirit, now you're sort of going off in another direction, trying to live for God and to earn his approval by obeying the law. That's not how you got faith. You heard the message, I placarded Christ before you. You heard it and you believed because God gave you his Spirit. Faith comes from God through the preaching of the gospel. Now, you want to see something delicious? Look at me in verses 7 and 9. I love this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You see that? God promised Abraham children that could not be numbered. And Abraham is thinking, I've got to have my own biological child. And in fact, he does. God gives him a biological child, but the descendants that God has in mind who cannot be numbered are the children who also have faith in God the way Abraham did. Now notice verse 8. This is the part I like. I like it all, but I really like this. And the scripture, referring to the Bible, the Old Testament, what we just read in Genesis, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, how? By faith, Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Did you get that? That the Bible in the Old Testament, Genesis 15, was preaching. And who was speaking to Abraham in Genesis 15? It was God. God was preaching, this is the text the gospel beforehand, before Christ had come, before his earthly ministry, before the crucifixion and the resurrection, way back in Genesis 15, when God calls Abram out of Ur and gives him these promises, the Bible now is telling us that God was actually preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ before Christ came. That's amazing. God's a preacher, and he's got one sermon He's got one sermon, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, And that sermon says this, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you believe in my son who was crucified for your sins, I will forgive your sins. If you believe in his resurrection, then I will justify you. I will declare you righteous because of your faith. And if you believe in his resurrection, believe also that he's coming again to receive you and to carry you where he is. That's the message. That's the sermon that God keeps preaching throughout the gospel, throughout the Bible. And in that way, the very promises given to Abraham in Genesis 15, beloved, are promises given to us. And if we would believe, that if we would trust Christ, if we would see him portrayed as crucified before our eyes, as crucified for our sins, and if we would believe and trust that he has been raised from the dead, then everything that Christ has done to be righteousness for us and everything that he has done to bear the penalty of our sins and everything he has done to push back the grave and to rise in glory becomes ours by faith. That's the free offer of the gospel to anyone who would believe. Now, I need to talk to sinners this morning, of whom I'm the chief. This gospel is for sinners. It's not for the righteous. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. You see, you can't, you can't tell a righteous man he's got anything wrong in his life. He's too caught up with himself. Jesus says this gospel is for sinners, that this, this truth, this message, this promise is for anyone who will admit their sin and would confess it to God and would see their sin the way God sees their sin and learn to hate it and abhor it and turn away from it. If you got sins, I've got a gospel for you. And Christ says if you would confess these sins and believe in me, I will make you new. I'll give you a new birth and a new life, and a new heart, and a new future. You'll no longer have to worry about God's condemnation and God's judgment because Christ will have taken it for you. And you will be seen by God as righteous, justified in His sight. That's the gospel, beloved. And it's for sinners. It's for anyone who would believe it. So let me ask you this morning. Perhaps you've come And you're not yet a believer. What do you do? You hear this message. You hear this offer. And maybe like Abram, you stumble at knowing how it's going to be true of you. And you say, but God, but God, but God, but God. I've done this. I've done that. uh, This has gone wrong. I'm not right in this way. What do you do? (laughs) You believe. You trust You lay hold to Christ by faith. And you remind God as Abraham did in Genesis 15 of what he promised. Abraham said, you promised me a child and I don't yet have one. And you remind God that he promised you forgiveness and eternal life, and you don't yet have it, but you're calling upon his name, and you're asking him to save you and to rescue you and to do all that he promised in your life. And here's the thing. God is not like man that he's slack concerning his promises. He keeps all of his promises. Believe. That's what you do. You turn from sin, and you believe. That's it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. That brings us really to our second point here. That saving faith looks like accepting or receiving, loving, trusting, and obeying the Word of God and all that it teaches. Now, we see that stated for us. Go back to page 10 of your bulletins in that middle paragraph, that fat paragraph. I want you to read it together with me again. And as we read, meditate on what it's saying. And then we'll look at Abraham's life to see the illustration. Is that all right? By faith, a Christian believes everything to be true that is made known in the word, in which God speaks authoritatively. He also perceives in the word a degree of excellence superior to all of the writings, indeed to all things that the world contains. The word shows the glory of God in seeing his various attributes, the excellence of Christ in his nature and in the offices he bears, and the power and perfection of the Holy Spirit in all the works in which he is engaged. In this way, the Christian is enabled to trust himself implicitly to the truth thus believed and to render service according to the different requirements of the various parts of Scripture. To the commands, he yields obedience. When he hears threatenings, he trembles. As for the divine promises concerning this life and that which is to come, he embraces them. But the principal acts of saving faith relate in the first instance to Christ as the believer accepts, receives, and rests upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life, and all by the virtue of the covenant of grace. Well done, beloved. What is he saying here in one sentence? Saving faith means accepting, loving, trusting, and obeying God's word as we put our hope in Christ. I don't miss this. If we have saving faith, that faith will orient us to the Bible with certain attitudes of heart. For example, we will, as the statement says there, believe everything to be true that is made known in the word. In other words, when we come to have saving faith by the grace of God, we will no longer dispute the scriptures will no longer doubt the Scriptures, will no longer tear apart or reject the Bible. Everything in it. Now, many of you will know, for many years, I was a practicing Muslim. And as a Muslim, I was convinced that the Scriptures had been distorted and twisted and falsified by Christians over the years. And and I held that belief firmly. And so for me, the Bible was a dead book. And God saved me in the preaching of the gospel. And all of a sudden, I had this appetite to read this thing that was once lifeless to me. To, to drink it in and to, and to find life in it and to, be, and to be sustained by it. And I went from a skepticism of the Bible to a, a trust and an acceptance of the Bible. By God's grace. Reminds me of Christy's sister, Josetta. Called up Christy one, one day when we were still living in the Cayman Islands. And she said, hey, Christy, I got a question. She said, what's that? She says, uh, That stuff you read in the Bible about the flood, is that true? Chris said, Yeah, that's true. She says, What about that stuff about people living like 900 years and stuff? Is that true? Chris said, Yeah, that's true. She asked about a couple other things, and Chris said, Yeah, that's all true. She had a way of saying, Huh. She said, Huh. I guess I got to believe all the Bible or none of the Bible, don't I? Amen. She was seeing very clearly what faith requires believing all of the bible as the authoritative word of god there is a real sense in which christians do declare as the little slogan goes god said it i believe it that settles it god said it i believe it That settles it. That's part of the echo of saving faith in the life of a person who truly believes. Or look at the statement here where it says, we will perceive in the word a degree of excellence superior to all other writings. There's there's no book like this book. there, There is no equivalent to this book. There is no other book with the same kind of wisdom from it. There are other wise books. There are other wonderful books, but none so wise as the one that God himself wrote. None so powerful in its insight. None so piercing in its clarity. None so elegant in its language. None so beautiful in its depiction of God. There is no other book like this book. This is the talking book. You just open it like this and God speaks. God speaks to you. It's a marvelous book. And this is why the the inspired poets in the Psalms would say things like, this word is better than gold purified seven times in the oven. And this is why Jesus would say things like this, that his word is is spirit and it's truth and, and, and would tell us it is life. And the scriptures tell us that we what? We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We don't live by bread alone, but by God's word. There's the the seeing of an excellence in the scripture that accompanies saving faith. And all of that's true because notice the next thing it says in in our statement. It's true because in the Bible we see most clearly the glory of God. You want to see God's beauty? You want to see his radiance? You want to behold his splendor? Or as the Bible puts it, you want to taste and see that the Lord is good? Read the book. Read the book prayerfully. Read the book with a warm heart. Read the book receiving it and trusting it to be true. And and what's open before you are not just old stories about a man named Abraham. What's open before you is the very hand of God. You begin to see how even when you can't see his hand, that his his hand is at work. And you begin to see how he reveals his, his love to his creatures. Even creatures who don't deserve it, who rebel against him and break their every promise to him. How he keeps coming to them in love. And you begin to see his goodness and his lavishness and his mercy. And you begin to see something of his justice and righteousness. And then you begin to see all of the world differently because you're looking at it through the light and the glory of God Himself. We love this book because we love this God. And God reveals Himself in this book. One more thing from that paragraph. Saving faith means, notice, we are enabled to trust, we are enabled to trust ourselves implicitly to the truth thus believed. What does that trusting yourself implicitly to the truth of the Scripture look like? Look at that sentence that says, To the commands, he yields obedience. When he hears threatenings, he trembles. As for the divine promises concerning this life and that which is to come, he embraces them. You see how the Bible actually makes you feel? It causes emotion. It causes reactions. If we read it properly, we hear the command of God and we say, that's our king speaking and we're going to obey him. And sometimes in the scripture, he warns or he threatens against disobedience and knowing that God is not mocked and knowing that God is just and holy, then the believer trembles at the threatenings. But then we hear promises, divine promises, promises like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And the heart hugs the promise. We embrace it, we cling to it, for it's our life. Now, in all of this, Abraham is our example. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. And there we're going to see Abraham trust himself implicitly to the truth that he believed when God himself preached the gospel to Abraham. So Abraham responds with this amazing obedience. He responds at trembling at God's threats and he embraces the divine promise. Now this is amazing. Remember that God promised Abraham when he was 99 that he was going to have a child. A year later God gave them the child. He and Sarah, his wife, who had been barren, unable to have children all her life for 90 years, gave birth to a child, Isaac. Is Abraham's one and only child. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, God tests Abraham by calling him to do the unthinkable. Notice there, as I turn to Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Here's God saying, go to this place called Moriah, build an altar, set it on fire, and sacrifice your son, the one you've waited a 100 years for, your only son. Verse 1 tells us God was testing Abram. Now notice verses 3 to 8, which tell us of Abraham's immediate response. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? It's a good question, Isaac. Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, verses 9 to 14, they show us the willingness of Abraham to obey God's word in reverence. Notice, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And you got to wonder what Isaac is thinking at this point, right? Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, maybe Abraham looks like a madman to you. I mean, here's this guy who's hearing voices telling him to do stuff, like sacrifice his son, right? Now, here he is. He's gone up on Mount Moriah, and he's tied up his son and laid him on a stack of wood, and he's got the knife raised. And if the, a- if the angel doesn't break in and say, Abraham, Abraham, stop, we're left to believe that Abraham would have let that knife fall on his boy in obedience to God's command, in reverence for God's holiness. Now, the wonderful news is God doesn't call us to do these kinds of things. Abraham and what's happening here is really unique in the history of God's redemption and the history of God saving people. This is really quite unique. And actually, it's another picture of the gospel. For Isaac was laid out on the altar and by all rights should have been sacrificed. But God stops the sacrifice of Isaac and instead points Abraham to a ram caught in the bush. That ram or that lamb becomes the sacrificial offering taking Isaac's place, which is precisely what Jesus has done. He was that lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world, who took our place on the wood of the cross, and there was crucified by the wrath of God. God just keeps preaching this sermon, doesn't he? But what about Abraham? How are we to understand him? And how does this teach us about what faith looks like? Well, turn with me once again to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and we want to consider their verses 17 to 19. Because in some ways, if you're new to the Bible, here's here's what you have to understand about the Bible. The Bible is one book written down over 1,500 years, has over 40 authors written in three different languages, but it tells one story. And the Old Testament is God's promises kind of made beforehand and kind of veiled. And the New Testament are God's promises fulfilled and revealed in Christ. And so the New Testament becomes a kind of explanation of the Old Testament. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. We get an explanation here with regard to Abraham and his faith and why he's commended for taking Isaac up on that mountain. Hebrews 11, verse 17. You have it, say amen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 19 gives us the tree. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see what happens with Abraham? You remember that scene, they're getting ready to go up on the mountain, and he tells the servants to stay there, and he says, me and the boy are going to go up, and we will be back. But he knows he's going up there to make the sacrifice if he has to, and he doesn't know what's going to happen, but he does know this, that God is great, and God can raise the dead. And so if he calls me to sacrifice the son that he promised to me, he has some way of keeping his other promise that through Isaac, my seed would be great. And so Abraham goes up onto that mountain, and we don't have to wonder about what he thinks as he holds this knife above his head. I'm going to do what God says, because God can raise this child from the dead. And just as the ram represented Christ's sacrifice for us, So in receiving Isaac back and not sacrificing him, the text here in verse 19 says, figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. And that's all pointing again to Jesus, who was crucified and buried for three days, but on the third day was raised again to life from the grave. And it points to us. For all of us who trust in Christ, likewise, will participate in his resurrection. We, too, have been raised from death to life. And the grave will not hold us because the life of Christ is in us. And we will live together forever with him. What does saving faith look like? It looks like this obedience to the scripture. This trembling at it and trusting in it. And obeying it as God calls us to. So we, like Abraham, are to behave toward God and his word with implicit trust. We, like Abraham, are to reason that God is able to raise Isaac from the dead. He's able to raise anything that we sacrifice in obedience from the figurative dead. What has God called you to do? What family members, like Abraham, has he called you to leave? What businesses has he called you to sell or to run and start what favorite things like an only son has he once given you now called you to give up do you think like Abraham that this thing that I yield in service to God he's able to give back even better See, that's the reasoning of faith Unbelief holds on to things. Unbelief says, I can't give this to God. I I can't trust God with this. God's trying to take this from me and I'm going to keep it. That's how unbelief works. Faith says, what do I have that I didn't first receive? And faith offers the person to Christ and all that the person has to Christ. And that's expressed in obedience to his word. Do We want to know if we have saving faith, then we should ask ourselves, do I receive, love, trust, and obey God's word as I trust and follow Jesus? One final thing. What does saving faith look like? Well, it looks like continuing to believe through the ups, downs, and attacks of life until we receive the eternal reward. Look with me in the bulletins at that final paragraph and let's read that together. Saving faith has its gradations, it may be weak or strong, yet, like all other kinds of saving grace, even at its lowest ebb, it is quite different in its nature from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. In consequence, though it may be frequently attacked and weakened, it wins through to victory, developing in many Christians until they attain to full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. That's a beautiful paragraph. Here's a one-sentence summary. Saving faith continues to believe in Christ and his word, through the ups and downs and attacks of life, until we receive eternal life. In other words, we keep believing until the end when we receive what God has promised. And once again, we see that in Abraham's life. Uh, Instead of going back to Genesis this time, turn with me to Romans chapter 4, verses 18 to 25. When you read the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to about chapter 25 or so, you're going to see a man who's not a superhero. You're going to see a man who is ordinary. You're going to see a man who is flawed. You're going to see a man who at times looks like he has very little faith. Let me give you one example. Twice, Abraham went into foreign lands, once to Egypt and once into a a kingdom run by a man named Abimelech. Now, his wife, Sarah, Well, here's how the Bible put it. Sarah was fine. (laughs) Sarah was a beautiful woman. And Abraham, every time he went into those lands, Abraham feared for his own life. He said, you know what? They're going to see you and they're going to kill me so they can have you. So this is what we do. You tell them that you're my sister, not my wife. Twice he did this to his wife. Twice. Now, that looks like anything but saving faith, doesn't it? Here's a man who put his pants leg on, or maybe his sandals. He didn't have pants. Put his sandals on, one foot at a time, just like us. But notice how the Bible describes this man of faith. Romans chapter 4, 18 to 25. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Notice. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him that's righteousness. That's striking. He had this old man still believing that God will, will give him children. His wife is barren. She's 90 years old, well past childbearing age, and they're wandering through the deserts of the Middle East. And What does Abraham do despite all the obstacles he sees? He hopes against hope. In other words, when all hope seemed lost, he hoped anyway. He believed God anyway. He continued in faith. And notice Romans says he did not weaken in faith. And that's not to suggest that no Christian ever should never weaken in faith. It is to say that over the arc of Abraham's life, he's growing stronger. There's some ups and there's some downs, but his faith is growing stronger as he trusts God and seeks to glorify God. And so the text says there in Romans that no unbelief made him waver, but instead he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now that is saving faith. That's the kind of faith that rescues us from judgment. Being convinced that God will keep his promise and will save us. And these are not things for people a long time ago. It's not Abraham the superhero these things are written down for our instruction and our faith. So look with me in Romans 4:23 to 25. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It would be counted to us who believe in him, who raised From the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, our faith in Jesus means our justification before God. Abraham's example of faith is instructing us to continue in faith in Christ, knowing that all that God promised us in Christ is yes and amen in Christ. He will deliver it. He will provide it. He will keep his word because he cannot lie. He will not lie. And so, beloved, it doesn't really matter whether your faith is great or small. You see the first line in that paragraph? This faith has gradations. Sometimes it's weak. Sometimes it's strong. And all you need to do is to be a Christian long enough and live long enough as a Christian, you will experience the weaknesses and the strongness of faith. But that's not what matters. It's not the extent of your faith, the strength of your faith. It's the existence of your faith, in the object of faith, Jesus Christ. It's because your faith rests in Jesus that your faith will never fail you. It's because your faith is in Christ that your faith will win through to the victory, as the the statement of faith puts it. The only kind of faith that fails is faith that's false. Even faith as small as a mustard seed, if it's true faith, will lead to the victory that is in Christ. And so, no doubt, in a room this size, there are people who are genuinely Christians, and you don't have what that last sentence says in the statement of faith, that full assurance of salvation. There are many people who struggle to be certain they are in the faith. This is all you have to ask yourself is do I believe in Christ? Is he my savior? Has he died for my sins? Has he been raised from the day, from the grave for my justification? And that faith can be as long and spindly and weak as a spider web. But if that one strand of web attaches itself to Christ, It will be strong enough to carry you over the pits of hell and swing you into the glory of heaven. Do I have any faith at all? You may be assured that you didn't muster that faith yourself. God gave it to you. And you may be certain that remaining in that faith is not you gritting your teeth and believing harder, but it's the Spirit of God keeping you in that faith, until the promises of God are in your hands. You struggle with unbelief? Believe anyway. Hope against hope. Call upon the name of Christ. He delights to make his power known when we boast in our weakness. And beloved, all of this is why we're in the community, is to see people come into this faith and to come to know this Savior, and to come to obey him, and to serve him, and to love his word, and to receive the promised eternal kingdom. We offer that freely to anyone who would believe. And if you're here this morning, and you've not yet believed this message, or you'd like to know more about how this works, I'm going to invite some people now. If you're here, you're a member of ARC, and you know the gospel, and that's all of you because you couldn't be a member if you didn't know it. Let me just invite you to raise your hand. All right? So you see all the hands are sort of around here. Any one of those faces. Pick the friendliest face you see and and talk to that person. And we would delight to talk to you about how you can know this Jesus and know this forgiveness and live eternally in his love. And beloved, I hope you're encouraged thinking about Abraham's life as I am. One of the passages that we didn't look at, we made reference to Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. Abraham leaves his home, goes to a land that he doesn't know in order to walk in the promises of God. I I don't mean this in any way as any kind of boast, but it's just encouragement to me that so many in this room have in their own way done that very thing. That just over the last three weeks or so, there are no less than a dozen people uh, who have sold places or ended leases in what many people would consider to be the better part of town. And they've heard the call of God to come and to live among the people here, and to be a member of the community here, and to serve the community here, not because they're saviors, not because they're great, not because they think they're better, but in obedience to God and faith, they've come to plant their lives. I, you know, I think about people who have moved from Chicagoland. Wife and Catherine. Wife lived. I won't tell you how old he is. He'll tell you. Wife lived at least five decades uh, <laughs> in in North Chicago. When I talked to my wife about joining us in this mission, one of the first things he said was, man, all I know is North Chicago. And God has moved he and his family here to D.C. to plant their lives here. I think about Jahil and Cod and the Richards family, fruitful ministry in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The only problem I could see there in Minneapolis was the winter. <laughs> but serving fruitfully in a church they love, who began to feel a passion for coming under the call of God to Anacostia, the southeast, and to building a church family that would reflect the gospel of God. I think about Eli and Matt Schmucker, who aren't with us this morning. They're on vacation as if they work hard or something. But <laughs> I think about them. For 20-some-odd years, they've been right there on Capitol Hill, right there at Capitol Hill Baptist Church who went to that church when that church was in many ways broken and in many ways dying, who can recall the early days of their sojourn there when someone had broken into their house and ransacked their house, laying there together. And Eli looks over at Matt, not able to sleep, and says, what are we doing here? And Matt's answer, wiser than he knew at the moment, was we're here for the people who will come. Now they have come here for the people who will come. And I just look out over these last several weeks and I think about the people who have long made their lives here. Think about Peter. Think about Miss Phyllis and her family. You know, I think about the many folks who have lived in Anacostia for decades in some cases, seeing the good times and seeing the rough times. And with a persevering faith, continue to bear witness and continue to love and serve their neighbors. And again, the numbers of folks we've just moved over these last few weeks single women moving to tough neighborhoods you know single men moving to neighborhoods to bear to bear witness to Christ why the one reason Jesus he has called us here we believe that it's part of our faith that we are endeavoring to obey him in this mission and we would desire anyone who feels this same burden and this same mission to come join us in faith, to make the gospel known, to bless our neighbors and love them in Christ and to see them, to see them come discover the joy that we have discovered in Jesus. He's a good Savior. He's a loving God. In his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's what we want all people to know. What does saving faith look like? It looks like trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior through the preaching of the gospel. It looks like obeying God's word, loving it, treasuring it, trusting it. And it looks like continuing in that faith through the ups and downs of life. May the Lord give us grace. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we love to praise your name. And how we marvel that you have loved us. From before the foundation of the world, you loved us. And Lord, we stagger at the demonstration of your love because you demonstrated your love in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, man. And that word which tells us that nothing will separate us from your love. Nothing will separate us from your love. We marvel and we thank you. And with inadequate praise, we praise you. And we take our place in that long line of saints who by faith walked with you, followed you, trusted you from Abraham down to Anacostia and all the witnesses and churches here in this neighborhood that preach your gospel and all the saints that assemble here week to week, Lord, we we take our place in the great company of people who have been declared righteous not because of anything we have done but because of your grace through faith and we love you for it. Receive our praise. Be exalted, be lifted up, be honored. And bless our souls, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.